0: This is the Documentary on One from RTE in Ireland. And today's documentary is a true story, stranger than fiction. The Seven Million Dollar Man.
1: Carl
2: Kane's mobile began ringing on the bedroom table, just as the pills he had consumed four hours earlier were starting to lose their cosy effectiveness.
3: Sam Miller is the author of 12 books, including this one, about a tough Belfast private investigator called Carl Kane. He could tell it was early morning because of that
2: particular quietness coming in from nearby streets. No sounds of drunken louts or screaming teenagers spilling out from nearby pubs and clubs in an around Hill Street in Belfast's trendy cathedral quarter.
3: But Sam is no ordinary author. His own life really is stranger than fiction. It involves the IRA, guns... Explosives and years in jail on the notorious blanket protests in the H blocks. You just think about it, you're naked. You're completely naked, and five or six screws coming in, beating the crap out of you every day. And there's also the small matter of a very large armed robbery. There was millions of dollars and millions of dollars. At the
0: time, one of the biggest in US history pails of money just sitting there, it was starting to stink. The guards were taken down, their wrists were bound, then the robbers pulled a van into the garage, closed the door, loaded up the van with $7 million, $7 million plus.
4: Here I used to have so many fights... Like his
3: fictional character, Carl Kane, the first chapter of Sam Miller's life begins here, on the streets of North Belfast.
4: We're near the middle of Lancaster Street, where Lancaster Street old would have been. All the houses have changed, of course. I used to live in an old Victorian house. And all these now have been
3: replaced by these red brick modern houses. Despite his very Protestant name, Samuel Ignatius Miller was born in 1955 into a staunch Catholic Republican family. The name Miller came from his grandfather, who was a Protestant, a Unionist and a member of the Orange Order. His grandfather was disowned by his family when he married Sam's Catholic grandmother. The funny thing was like here we are in this
4: big Republican street and we'd have a size on the wall, along with the Pope's picture and John F. Kennedy's picture, so it was strange. I and mean, when the cops used to come in and raid our house looking for guns, they seen the size. They were a bit confused. They would walk back out again instead of searching. Well, what was it like being a kid round here? Oh, it was brilliant. Like, you know I mean? You, you look back now, of course, with nostalgia and you, you realise just how good you really had it. But it could be a tough area because I lived right in the middle of the bloody street and at the top of the street there was a gang, the uh, North Queen Street gang, and down at the very bottom we had the Thomas Street gang and no matter what, I was always running the gauntlet, afraid of getting the crap beat out of me by one of the two gangs, you know. Who was in the family? We had three brothers, Donnie and Joe, and Mary and
3: Phyllis, my sisters, my father and my mother. In the mid-1960s, Sam's family suffered a huge loss. My mother left when I was about eight years of age.
4: She was depressed. We didn't understand it at the time. One morning I just got up and she was no longer there. And i never seen her again the rest of my life. And it really showed away screwed my mind up a bit, because I used to think she'd come and pick me up at school every day. For years, I'd be watching her come to pick me up, but she never came, of course. And I hated her at the time because she put a lot of pressure on my father, who's a seaman. He didn't want to come home and look after her family. But I didn't realise at the time she was suffering from depression. Those days, you didn't talk about such a thing. Nobody knew about it.
3: One way Sam coped with his mother leaving was through comic books.
5: Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Spider
3: Oh, comics.
4: I'm still in love with them. My father was a merchant seaman, used to go to New York, He'd come home about three times a year, He'd he big suitcases full of all these American comic books, Marvel, DC, you know. And I fell in love with them. I learned very little at school, but the comics educated me, and I was lucky enough to have Belfast Public Library right down the bottom of the street. So that's where I escaped, too, you know. I mean, I'd go into a library and become Tintin, or somebody would just go back up the house and become Spider Man, you know. And I was just trying to escape the poverty that I was living under and the fact that my mother left and all, was quite tough. So they saved me as a wee lad, you know.
3: Comic books would play a big part later in Sam's adult life. But for now, the reality of Northern Ireland was never far away. My family were quite politically aware. Brothers were
4: socialists or Republicans but me, I, I didn't really have an interest in that. The only thing I was interested in was girls and going to discos and things like that. And my brother, Donnie, was quite disgusted with me, my attitude, like he was trying to explain, like, you're living here and you're you're a second-class citizen, the way you're treated here, no jobs, despite your education. I was just turned 16, and he decided to take me one day to Derry. It was the 30th of January, 1972. That day happened to be bloody Sunday. The car was trying to get in towards the box, and we were stopped by British soldiers all the way in, and the RUC trying to get us so as we wouldn't go back in towards the the, uh, big march that was going on at the time. Just as we were getting in advance, all you could hear was all the gunshots and the gas. I'll never forget the gas coming over all the roofs, coming into the car.
5: Do not fire back for the moment! Unless
4: you identify a And even when we finally escaped, the CES gas that they were shooting was still with us inside the car. It's the first time I ever saw my father cry. But the minute we walked in, he just hugged me and he says, I thought you were dead. And I said, what do, you, what, what do you mean, Dad? He says, oh, you still don't know. So many people have be been murdered in Derry by the power troopers.
3: And uh, it just changed my whole life forever. 10 months later, Sam's 17-year-old friend, Jim Kerr, was working one night as a petrol pump attendant in Belfast.
4: He got a job as a, working in a garage in Lisburn Road. I got a job in the bloody abattoir. And I was sort of envious of him and he was saying, don't worry and no, all, let me be here a couple of months and I'll get you in here with me working. But a week later he was murdered. They shot him like six times in the head, the Loyalists, for being a Catholic in the Lisburn road. Just I was me really finished thinking that this place was normal.
3: Soon after, Sam joined the IRA. And in 1973, he was imprisoned for three years for being a member of an illegal organisation.
0: They
4: put me in long cash at the time. That's where all the political prisoners were at the time. We had won recognition for our political status, and there, it was like going to university. I was working class, I never went to university. There was teachers there and professors there who had been arrested by the British, and they started to teach me what I didn't learn in the street. A few years later, I got out, and I started to do things for the Republican movement. You know, i learned in the long case different things, how to combat against the British, how to combat against the loyalists, and I wasn't shy when I was called upon to do things.
3: On the 18th of January, 1977, Sam was convicted once again, this time for possession of guns and explosives. This time, he got 10 years in prison. At that stage, political status for IRA prisoners had been taken away. And in protest, prisoners like Sam refused to wear prison clothes. They were naked, except for a prison-issue blanket. And because of that, they became known as the Blanket Men
1: can be no question
5: of political status for someone who is serving a sentence for crime. Crime is crime is crime.
3: It is not. Sam was still years away from a life as a writer or a big time armed robber. But since then, he has written about his time in the H-blocks and his experience on the blanket.
2: The screws, in another futile attempt to break us, had now boarded up the windows from the outside, blocking out all light and air. The cell seemed to have physically shrunk, squeezed into a bone-tight coffin. Tiny demons of panic began dancing in my head, inducing breathlessness, marrying an insufferable heat and stench into one sensory hell.
4: Yeah, it's, it's quite hard to explain, you know. It's like asking somebody what was Vietnam like, you lost, you lost your legs, can you tell us all about that? You know, I mean, you, you never know unless it happened to you, but, you know, first night I arrived, I was stripped naked. I remember getting terrible beaten. these screws, you know, I mean, they were laughing, then they trailed me by the ankles all the way up to one of the, the H-blacks, you know, and by the time I got there, my whole skin was all ripped open, you know. They thought it was so funny, you know. And then standing up in front of all the, the governors, you know, and they wanted me to say, sir, and I would not it, so, of course, that was more beatings, you know, I've never called anybody, sir, in my life. I wasn't going to start now, you know. And then they put me in naked in the H-blacks. H-blacks was quite an intimidating place, you know, it's quite claustrophobic, these small cells all crowned together. Quite a, quite a horrendous place. I was one of the first really early blanket men at the start to go on the blanket protest. We really didn't know what
3: was going to happen, you know what I mean? Two years later, the protest moved on and prisoners started to smear their own excrement on the walls of their cells.
2: The pipes had been turned up full blast to exaggerate the stench of piss and shit. It was an overwhelming, claustrophobic torture. Not for the faint-hearted, it made you want to tear your skin and hair, ripping them clean off as the cell became an oven and a coffin, getting smaller and hotter.
4: If somebody had told me I was going to be here for over eight years, I'd have probably commit a suicide. Really? Yeah, I mean, I was fucking I It was such a depressing place. Like, you know, I just thought, well, tomorrow is going to change. And tomorrow, and then the next thing, a year's gone by, and you're going, oh, tomorrow. And it started going, tomorrow, tomorrow, you know? It's no end to it, you know?
3: Tomorrow came eventually when eight and a half years later Sam was released from prison with one thing on his mind. To go back on active service to once again fight the British. You know, it's not romantic.
4: I'm terrified being in there. You know, shit scared. But, the, you know, I'd lost a lot of friends on the hunger strike. Bobby Sons, Joe McDonald, big Ciarán Doherty, all personal friends of mine. Plus I lost all our volunteers outside. The cash had died doing operations. So... I already had it in my head, you know, give me a couple of days. I didn't know at the time, but my father had other plans. He had to do his utmost to try and keep me out of prison or keep me out of the IRA, doing active things, you know.
3: His father arranged for Sam to meet a young woman called Bernadette. She was my best mate's sister,
4: where she said, well, look, I finished at 4 o'clock, do, do you want to go somewhere maybe? Do you want to go to the pictures? And I said, no, I don't, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind going for a walk or something. You know, I mean, that's the way it was. And next thing you know, the two of us are just freaking falling in love with each other. And that was the start of me easing away from a Republic. My love for the Republican movement was, was always a love for it. But now I have found a different love for the first time in my life. And it was slowly taking over.
3: Like so many young Irish in the 1980s, Sam and Bernadette decided to move to America. And though it wouldn't be easy, the Republican movement had friends in the US who could help make it all happen. One of those friends was a man named Tom O'Connor.
0: Tom retired as a cop and was one of hundreds of people in Rochester, very active in in NORAID.
3: This is Rochester journalist Gary Craig.
0: NORAID was an organization uh, set up to help uh, the families of imprisoned IRA volunteers. So Tom agreed to go over and meet Sam in the aftermath of Sam's leaving Long Cash and when Sam was hoping to come to the United States. And, and they met and, and you know, hatched a plot. So Tom posted a letter to Sam. So I had this letter in front of me and I opened it up and
4: there was 10 $100 bills. I didn't have 50p in my packet, you know? And next things to a note from a friend just saying, Luke, get yourself and Bernie over here. You know, have have what you went through, enjoy yourself in New York, stay here a week, stay two weeks, stay whatever you want. We ended up, we got the tickets, and I told my father, it was a Monday, and I said to him, look I'll be back on Friday. He was so delighted,
3: you thought he'd won the pools. But there was a problem.
4: Had to get smuggled in. Bernie was okay, she was legal, she went the legal way, through JFK, whereas I had to go through Canada and a whole rigmarole of different way islands to get into the country.
0: Sam came into Toronto, Canada on a flight, and then Tom smuggled Sam into the US, into Rochester from there.
3: For a while, Sam and Bernie lived quietly near their friend Tom O'Connor among the tight-knit Irish community in Rochester, in upstate New York. But Sam had bigger ideas.
0: Eventually, Sam and Bernadette, and a child they had at the time, uh, left Rochester, moved to New York City... Once I went to New York, I just couldn't believe this, you know. I started to taste freedom for the first
4: time in my life in this country, America, in this city, New York. I just fell in love with it. You know, I read about it as a kid in all the comic books, and now here I was actually living in it. I was just, I was like an idiot walking around New York just staring at everything. I must have thought there was something wrong with his
3: head, you know.
0: Sam had... An honest job and a less than honest job. He'd, he'd worked as... Gary uh, Craig uh, again. An elevator operator, you know, the job with the normal pay, etc. Uh, but he was also one of a number of, of Irish folks who worked in some illegal casinos across Manhattan and in, in the boroughs of New York City. And uh, the fellow who established those casinos, was Irish heritage himself... And often used folks who had come into the country illegally, you know, folks perhaps with IRA background to, to work the casinos. And he just had a particular trust for them, and I think he just he understood them. And and Sam was one of those people who worked at those casinos. There
3: were lots of undocumented Irish in New York in the nineteen eighties, and many of them would have known Father Patrick Maloney. Who you want? I'm looking for Father Patrick Maloney? All right, let me see if you there.
5: Excuse me. What's your name? Michael. Mr. Mike, OK. Let me, hold on, Mike, let me see, let me see if you... He, he, he
3: should be expecting... He, give me a second. He's a priest from Limerick who has been living in the East Village in Manhattan since 1957. From a staunch Republican family, he was an active supporter of the Irish cause. One day, he was
5: introduced to Sam. I was introduced to Sam, and then he told me, Sam used to be a blanket man. OK. Maybe you can help him up the road. Well, I met him, I met the kids, one of them. I baptized all the kids thereafter.
3: So oh, he was here with his wife and family? Isn't
5: yeah, it? right. He'd come in, uh, she'd gotten a green card, and he'd come. No, she was waiting for the green card, I helped her get it in the end. And uh, she came through family as a visitor. He'd come through the border. And so I took, uh, he was working, he said, Well, now I work under the name of Frankie, okay, uptown. And he'd hop by to see me every so often. I'd give him things for the kids, help out. Any I could help him I'd help him. Okay. they lived in Jackson Heights at the time. That's all they knew about Sam.
3: Things couldn't have been going better for Sam. He had an exciting job he loved, plenty of money, a young family, and the troubled streets of 1980s Belfast were just a distant memory. But there was something playing on Sam's mind. His friend, Tom O'Connor, the ex-cop who smuggled Sam into the US, brought him to see the Brinks Cash Depot in Rochester, where Tom now worked. All the armored cars used to come with all the money, and all
4: used to be deposited up in this place in Rochester. This was their main drop-off point. So he worked there, and he used to bring me in all the time, like Thanksgiving Day, all this up for drinks, pizzas, you know what I mean? Typical Americans, I don't really give a shit. And when I went in, I couldn't believe it, you know? They had all these safes from all the wall, massive, and all the money, just sitting there with the doors lined up. I thought, what the hell is going on with that? So obviously it kept coming back to me, and the more I thought about it, of course, it was aggravating me. They were just asking for it.
3: Although it sounds like the fiction he would go on to create, Sam has never spoken on tape about the robbery before, although he does write about it in his memoir. Chapter 37. Beers, hot dogs and money.
2: Lots of money. Did I mention money? Lots of it. August 1986. ''Be careful what you wish for.'' Chinese proverb. I had already visited the Brinks Depot. Tom had taken me over for a tour when the other guards had gone for the day. I'd been amazed at the lack of serious security in the place. And this was highlighted by stories of how a pizza delivery man had simply walked straight into the place one day without being stopped. He'd found the security door wide open. And to his amazement, piles of money sat unguarded in corners waiting to be placed in the massive vaults. But the most glaring lapse happened whenever a guard ran out to the local store, leaving the doors ajar, held with nothing sturdier than a pencil. Millions of dollars, guarded by a pencil. There was no doubt in my mind, all this money was there for the taking. Tom's reaction had told me what I wanted to know. There was no way Tom would go along with my mad idea. That's why I quickly put it out of my head. For now.
3: But Sam didn't put it out of his head for long. And he needed help with this plan. It would come first in the form of a colourful character by the name of Ronnie Gibbons.
4: Ronnie Gibbons, you couldn't invent Ronnie. Ronnie. Ronnie's a guy, if he didn't exist, you'd have to create him in a book. He was this philanthropist, philosopher, um, a jack of all trades. He was just one of these guys that, colourful, lit up, typical... New Yorker, except he was not a New Yorker. He was from Liverpool, from Irish family. He was
0: a boxer, well-known boxer, one of uh, quite a few good fights. Ronnie worked the illegal casinos with Sam and some others, and Sam had originally approached Ronnie about doing the robbery here in Rochester. When I started to think, who the hell could I go along with? Who would be crazy
4: enough? And, of course, Ronnie's name came into my mind, you know? I wasn't 100% about him, but at the same time, you know, he had a bit of a reputation, you know, a boxer and all this here, So, and I'd seen Harry operate at the casinos. And I went to him, I told him his plan, he was all for it. So he went up, got the two Vans up in Harlem. It was a snow winter, i never forget. We
0: have winter storm warnings, put a snow or more, and still in play
4: here. Winter a bit nervous going up, because when the snow falls and the market falls, you know, it's not like here, falls for two days, and, you know, everybody panics when they see a bit of flakes here. There you're talking about three, four feet of snow, and you're trying to push these trucks. Well, we're going on the the, uh, the throughway. We headed up states a bit near uh, our drive from New York City to Rochester. It's a long, long drive, you know. It's quite, and you know, you'd have to stop off maybe four times to fill it up for uh, petrol. We're getting close to Rochester, maybe about two hours away. And next thing, I look in the rearview mirror, and I see the truck behind me, which Ronnie's driving, just slipping off in the side and go on different traction all the And I knew there and then he was never going
3: to do it. He had chickened out of it. So with the failed attempt at the robbery behind him, Sam went back to working in the casinos. But he just couldn't stop thinking about all that cash he had seen lying around the depot in Rochester, just asking to be taken.
4: About four days later, I started thinking again about all this money, and I thought, No, 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 I have to do something here because it's such an
3: insult. I mean, they're just just tempting me, they're challenging me, all this money. Sam says his next recruit was another man from the casinos called Marco. He was an American Marine, and we've become good friends over the years. He was the right man
4: for the job. But a year and a half after Ronnie's escapade, we went ahead and done the brinks. And we did it right.
0: At the site of the robbery... Is fairly close to the highway here, right on the outskirts. This is
3: journalist of Gary Craig again. He's taking a trip back to the scene of the crime, one of
0: the biggest cash heists in U.S. history. It's no longer a Brinks Depot, it's now an auto repair shop. Very few people had any clue beyond the folks that worked here that this was a Brinks Depot. It's just a very nondescript building. And, you know, there were millions upon millions cycling through there every night. January 5th, 1993, a little similar to today here in Rochester, which is windy and cold with snow and snow blowing around.
4: After taking it all in, no one who was going to be on it that night had to be certain people who'd be on. I'm not going to go into all the detail about it, but I fancy we don't.
0: There were several guards on site. They were counting up the, the millions upon millions of dollars and dividing them into separate bags for, you know, this branch's ATM, that bank's ATM, this store, that store, and dividing it all up to deliver the next day. And everybody's a little tired. I mean, it was you know, getting past 6 o'clock or so. It had been a long day. Three
3: guards total. His friend Tom O'Connor was already outside the depot when Sam and Marco arrived, so they tied him up and carried on.
0: Tom O'Connor had left the area inside where they were counting all the money, and said, I'm going to go get some bags outside uh, for more cash. And after he had stepped out, that's when uh, the two guards, Dick Popowicz and uh, Milt Deal, were overtaken by the robbers. According to Sam,
3: himself and Marco used replica guns to disarm the two guards inside. And the big
4: mistake we made was uh, we couldn't get a, a truck. We had this little van, you know. But I thought, fuck, you know, I'm only going like, to take a couple of thousand anyway, you know what I mean? It's just enough the sheer hell of it, you know what I mean? But we got in there. We filled the van up. But we were lifting it like Superman. It was like the adrenaline was just lifting his bags, you know what I mean? And we pumped it in. And we tried to get out and we couldn't because all the black smoke was coming out of this little van. There's too much wheel in it, you know? So we had to get back out and pull it all back out again, you know what I mean? And How much money did you reckon it was in Oh, we knew how much money went on. It was over 20 million at the time, but we only got away with like it because we couldn't take any more. You know what I mean? Like, well, or we left behind, like 20 odd million. You know?
0: and the robbers closed the door and, and drove away, and nobody in law enforcement had any clue right away that night where they'd gone. They did take Tom O'Connor hostage, and, and Tom was dropped off on the west side of Rochester by the robbers and made his way to a restaurant, which is where he then called uh, 911 and the police.
1: My name is Paul Hawkins. I'm retired from the FBI. Back in uh, January 5th of 93, I was uh, the case agent on a rather large robbery in Rochester, New York. The uh, police department got the call from the two guards that got tied up and uh, we found out that the uh, third guard had been I'll put this in quotes, kidnapped by the perpetrators and that 7.4 million had been taken out of the Brinks uh, Warehouse facility in downtown Rochester.
3: So it seems that right from the start, the FBI seemed to have a pretty good inkling as to who might be responsible.
1: Well, we had discussed who the individuals were that were employed there, and once we found out that Tom O'Connor was one of the guards and was the guard that was kidnapped. We knew exactly who had perpetrated the robbery because Tom had a very bad reputation. Uh, He was retired from the city police department, uh, was a suspect in several homicides, was never charged with any of them. We felt that he probably was involved and had some help. We knew through previous investigations that probably his help was Sam Miller uh, because Tom had smuggled him from Canada across into the United States.
3: Sam headed back down to New York City, but he soon realised he had a problem. Where to store all that cash? Father Pat Maloney had the solution. He ran a series of safe houses where he would shelter people who needed to keep a low profile, including members of the Republican movement from Northern Ireland.
5: I'd want in the West Village. I'd one in Midtown. I'd one in Stuyvesant Town. Well, there would be like sub You were going away for a year or that. I mean, a priest meets a lot of people like that. So this friend Charlie was going away for a year to Jamaica to his brother down there. And the apartment was very low rent, a very big apartment, a nice bedroom and big everything, big living room. You could have two people comfortably living there individually. So I took over the apartment.
3: Sam and his wife, Bernie, knew Father Pat well at this stage, and Father Pat let Sam put the money in his friend, Charlie McCormick's apartment.
4: I uh, got talking, I was saying I got, got money, I got a lot of money. He must have thought at the time, probably, that this was casino money. So he was thinking, yes, 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 he probably thought £20,000 or something, you know what I mean? And uh, I was saying, well, it's a wee bit more, more than that there, you know, and he was like, it's a few million. So he, like, he didn't know what to think, you know. So I'm not going to say any more about the priest, you know. He's not here to defend himself because, you know, it's, it's up to him what he wants to say about it. But he was looking after the money.
3: Meanwhile, in their new home in Queens, Sam opens a comic book store, a dream he'd harboured since he was a child. He called it KAC Comics, after Sam and Bernie's three children. And he had no shortage of funds to purchase stock. By now, the FBI are well on the case of Sam and the stolen cash.
1: We did find him in Queens. Uh, We got the New York office interested in surveilling him.
0: Sam had a pretty regular routine that they, they knew from surveillance. But one day that changes... And he goes into Manhattan to an apartment building, you know, comes out. And in the days after, he does this more and more, and he's carrying bags and duffel bags, which uh, the FBI says they believe clearly contained cash just based on the impression, sort of the way the bags were shaped, and it looked like bundles of cash that he was carrying into this apartment.
1: We decided to put a surveillance camera on the hallway outside. The stash house, and lo and behold, there was a a small elderly priest <laughs> accessing the money um, with Sam, and one time without Sam.
0: His name had come to them some because Father Pat, it turned out, had actually bought the car, uh, the Ford Explorer that Sam was driving, but it, it wasn't necessarily that they thought just because of that, he was suspicious. They assume, well, maybe he's somebody that knows Sam and has helped him, as Father Pat had. But it wasn't they necessarily, in the beginning, thought, this guy's involved. But then they start seeing Father Pat show up at the Manhattan apartment, and they say, Father Pat sometimes is carrying cash and counting it outside of the Manhattan apartment as he's leaving, something Father Pat completely denies, but an FBI agent and a New York police person testified to that.
1: The money stayed in the apartment for a couple of weeks. Father Maloney brought in a counting machine and started running the counting machine. And we had a surveillance agent go up to the door and listen. She goes, they're counting the money. And so we said, well, if they're counting it, they're probably getting ready to move it. So we probably ought to hit it with a search warrant.
3: One day in November 1993, 10 months after the robbery, the FBI decided they had enough evidence to make arrests.
4: Well, the day I got caught, I was going down to the post office in Queens. It's quite a busy place, you know, there's Chinese fruit stalls and all these Korean fruit stalls and, you know, very busy.
3: So I went into library, I the library. The reason Sam is whispering, by the way, is because he's telling me all this in the Linen Hall Library in Belfast.
4: I went into the, the uh, post office to get something, and the minute I walked out, I knew something was wrong. The whole street was deserted. Suddenly, there wasn't a sound. It was like a zombie movie, you know? And I walked out, and I stopped. And I fucking knew there in the end, it's over. My van was parked up the side street. So I walked normally from the post office, waiting any minute to be grabbed, you know? I went up to my van, put the hand on my van. And the minute I did, the FBI just came out. And they started screaming, where's the guns, where's your gun, where's your gun? I never had a gun, never had a gun in New York, you know, never, never cared about there. But they obviously had this thing in their head, I was going to be a shootout notice, you know. And then they says, Sam, we're the FBI, you're being arrested.
3: So, of course, that's it, that's the end of the world, your world just collapses, you know. Father Patrick
5: Maloney was at home in Manhattan. It was a Friday evening, I'll never forget, it the dying day, it was the 12th of, of November. I'm walking out the door with him, and then I look around... The whole place is surrounded with trucks, there's snipers in the roof here and there, and the guns are trained on me. What's happening? I thought it was a drug raid gone bad. They were around the corner, they were everywhere. They really thought they had another cell of IRA or something, and the money was here.
3: I mean, they were so
5: badly informed.
3: The story made national and international headlines.
2: Patrick Maloney is a priest and now is also an accused felon, charged in connection with one of the largest armored car robberies in US history. Federal authorities say Father Maloney had in his possession money from a Brinks robbery that occurred last January in Rochester, New York, in which $7.4 million was stolen. Two other suspects, including a former Rochester police officer who worked for Brinks, were also arrested.
4: Myself, Father Pat Maloney, Charlie McCormick,
3: and Tom My best friend, Cop, were gathered and charged with the Brinks robbery. There was no sign of Sam's accomplice, the mysterious Marco, or the other $5 million in stolen cash. Like all good crime fiction, there was some unfinished business with the heist, and the reality of it would have serious consequences for Ronnie Gibbons, Sam's friend, who pulled out of the robbery at the first attempt. During the search of his house, the FBI found just under $200,000 hidden in Father Pat's bedroom. Money which Sam says he told Father Pat to give to Ronnie Gibbons. Ronnie knew who did the heist, and this money was to keep him quiet. So Pat agreed to give it to him, you know.
4: And that's the way I thought, except during the court case, you find all these tapes that they've been watching, you know, been watching you 24 hours a day, you feel silly, you thought you knew it all, but they've actually been watching you for weeks, for months. And the first thing one of the FBI guy said to me was, well, where did Maloney get all this money? I never said that, I thought he was talking about all the millions that we had in the, the uh, apartment She said, that money he had under his bed I never said anything, she said, that's yeah, yeah, a nice sum of money isn't it? 200,000 dollars And I knew then, that he hadn't given Ronnie the money he was supposed to give him. So I was quite angry You know, Pat hadn't followed simple instructions, you know what I mean And You know, think about it. we got millions and millions of dollars sitting here What's a couple of hundred thousand? It's nothing It's a few crumbs off a loaf, you know
3: The trial takes place in Rochester in late 1994.
0: Tom O'Connor is actually the only one accused of the robbery. He's accused of being the inside guy. Gary Craig again. Sam Miller, Charlie McCormick, Father Patrick Maloney are all accused of basically the illegal possession of this stolen cash and the conspiracy to have this stolen cash.
3: In reality... There was very little evidence other than the stolen money. Here's the problem we had. Paul Hawkins, retired FBI agent again. The
1: prosecutors weren't comfortable charging anybody with the robbery itself. So the judge basically threw out most of our case.
0: And it goes for for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And and, and Tom O'Connor testified on his behalf and admitted that he had smuggled Sam to the country. And, you know, what everybody had suspected years before, he, he told that story. The, the best lawyers here in Rochester, best defense lawyers, uh, were representing the accused. And in the end, it ended up with kind of a mixed verdict. You had Sam was convicted of conspiracy to possess the cash. Uh, Father Pat was convicted of the conspiracy to possess the cash.
5: Father, Father. Father. Yes, what, Father? Father you want a hunger strike? Absolutely. Why? Right. American justice state law. That's it.
0: Tom O'Connor was acquitted of all charges, and Charlie McCormick was acquitted of all charges. What,
2: what kind of an ordeal has this been for you? There's definitely no real joy in being found innocent when you were innocent. And...
3: This is the voice of Charlie McCormick, the innocent owner of the apartment where the money was stored.
2: Your family's been harassed, and you've been persecuted with no evidence whatsoever. Uh, I think it's a real shame that this actually ever occurred. The
1: jury felt that there wasn't enough evidence against O'Connor and McCormick. Um, you
5: know, I judgments as to whether it's weak or not. Uh, you know, I leave that to the jury. I thought,
3: Father Patrick Maloney and Sam Miller are sentenced in early 1995. Father Pat is sentenced to four years and three months in prison, while Sam gets five years.
4: Well, when, when you're in long case as a political prisoner. No matter how horrendous it is, and you're being tortured and beat up, the one thing you have behind you is your comrades. And that is a thing that can't be destroyed. And that's the thing that keeps you strong and keeps your faith going. Your comrades, you know, in America, it's extremely violent. I mean, your people are just being killed everywhere, left, right and centre. And I was lucky because when I went into the system into the penitentiaries, no matter where I went, I was always taken care of by Irish-American gangsters or the Hells Angels. I don't know why the Hells Angels liked me so much. I think it was just because they were against the system so much, but any place, any prison I was getting moved to, and I moved to lots and lots of prisons. They were trying to break me down. And I always had people waiting for me to protect me. And I was lucky. You know, it's just because if I had been on my own, I wouldn't have made it.
5: They had me all over. They gave me circuit therapy in the beginning, which that's to disorientate you. I started out in Rochester, I went to Otisville, I was in Lewisburg, I was in Oklahoma. So they gave me what they call a management variable. So, so they took my classification from a low-level conspiracy case all the way up to the top. And they're still in my paperwork. I was the IRA general I was the terrorist. I was the mastermind of the robbery, even though never charged with the robbery and acquitted of everything other than the so-called conspiracy to hold the money. And even that was shady. I never heard about the robbery until the day I was arrested. I mean, I hate to say it, but Sam was a thieving scoundrel. And now to the present day, he admitted he was the robber. He knows that I had nothing to do with it. He could have exonerated me many times. Th- even in the book, he could have come along and clearly said, Father Maloney knew nothing from before or after. Father Maloney knew nothing. Didn't even know the money was going into that apartment until it got there. He never did that. I don't know why.
3: Now locked in maximum security penitentiaries, Father Pat and Sam get on with serving their sentences. Then one day, some inmates approach Sam.
4: I don't remember all these healthy and old guys came over to me and said, Sam, do you know a guy called Ronnie Gibbons? And it was right on the front page of the New York paper. It just says about Boxer disappears, suspected to be murdered, had links to the Brinks robbery. And of course, then that's when I realised that Ronnie was dead. You know, I still, in my heart, I didn't believe it because I thought, you know, this is a, this is one of Ronnie's tricks because he's a man of many tricks. He's like a magician, you know. I says, no, he's disappeared. He's taken himself out of, out of the road, got some money laying low, changed his identity because he was always doing things like this here so I didn't really believe it. You know, despite everything, Ronnie was still a friend of mine. You know, regardless of anything, you know what I mean? And I was hoping beyond hope that it was all lies, that he was alive that he was hiding down Las Vegas somewhere with a boxing community.
1: His boxing career was over. Paul Hawkins again. He was a friend of Sam's. He was working in the gambling joints too and when he saw Sam got his share and he didn't get hit, you know, He figures, hey, you know, I'm just scraping by and this guy's living the high life, selling comic books and didn't think it was very fair. But I guess he felt like he was part of the planning stages. So he, I don't know, they kicked him out or he backed out or whatever, but he felt like it was unfair that he got cut out of the proceeds. And he borrowed a car from a fireman down in New York City and um, drove up here and uh, went to a meet at a restaurant, and thought he could come up and, I don't know what, ask for his share and not get killed.
0: For years and years and years, Ronnie's whereabouts were a mystery. Journalist Gary Craig. 2011, a medical examiner realized that these body parts that had floated ashore in this area called the Thousand Islands in the late 90s, a foot and separately a torso, had the same DNA and checked the DNA with some matches that they got from Ronnie's family. And, and, and lo and behold, it, it was Ronnie. To this day, uh, there's never been a real answer as to who killed Ronnie. I always remember when I,
4: when I found out about it I was shattered. You know, I was really sickened and saw it for him, saw it for his family, you know, I mean, this is the hardest life, you know, because at the end of the day, he was still a funny, good guy. You know, I mean, he was a character, but not to end up like out there, it was terrible.
3: Ronnie's dead, and Sam and Father Pat are in prison. Nobody else is arrested or charged in connection with the robbery. Five million dollars of the stolen money was never recovered. Then, in 1997, Sam gets some good news. He's been released and deported back to Northern Ireland.
4: I got out, but I mixed emotions, because part of that agreement was I wasn't allowed to set foot in America ever again. Automatic five years. So I was sort of a heartbroken, but at the same time I was going home to my family, Going home to Belfast, wasn't feeling too happy about having to go back to Belfast, you know, per se, because I hadn't been there 14 years. It was a strange land to me. And when I did get back to Belfast, it was a strange land. It had changed. I didn't know anybody. All my friends had moved on to wherever they were going, most had married now and, you know, now the grandkids now, you know, and things like this here. But even the areas, Belfast City Centre, everything had changed dramatically.
3: Now, over 20 years later, Father Pat still lives in his brownstone house on East 9th Street in the East Village of Manhattan, where he remains an active member of the local community. I had nothing whatever to do with the Brinks robbery before or after the fact. And yet, I can't check it off. When Sam returned to Belfast, he was at a loss as to what to do with himself until he saw a small ad in a local newspaper.
4: I hung a penny and next time I am sitting in the library the library just down from the street. I used to live in Lancaster Street, and I opened up Belfast Telegraph fair nice little tiny advertisement saying, get your, your stories in for the brand Muir Award, and I really hadn't a clue what it was. But what I did see was a £1,000. And, I mean, I'm sitting there with nothing, just back from America. You know, everybody thinks I have all these millions. You know, I can tell you now. I had a penny, all taken from me, you know. I didn't think it would, it would even be uh, considered, but I put it in hoping to win some money. And I did win it, you know. Afterwards I sat and thought, God, this is what I always wanted to be from a little kid. I wanted to be like Stanley, Lee, create all these great characters, these great stories, you know what I mean? And it gave me the thought I could be a writer. And I had this manuscript that I wrote Longhorn and the penitentiary. You know, I thought about doing this here and maybe making it into a memoir. Brought it all down to what you have will have now is a book on the brinks and uh Blew everybody out of water when it came out. Won so many awards and became bestseller twice. Warner Brothers bought the rights to it. It just opened a whole new life.
3: Winning the Brian Moore Award did indeed open a whole new direction in life for Sam as a novelist. I'm in the world of
4: writing. I'm now a writer. I'm an accepted writer all over Europe. It's strange for me, like you know, I go to Germany and go to France and see my books in windows and people talking good things about me for a change instead of bad things.
3: Now 65, Sam's life is a world away from prisons, blanket protests, casinos, and armed robbery. These days, it's all fiction. He's written 12 books and received many awards, a lot of them for a series of crime noir novels featuring detective Carl Kane. I just continue to write until I stop writing and drop dead or whatever
4: the hell happens to me.
2: Carl quickly untangled her arms from his neck and began pushing himself up wearily from the sofa like an old heavyweight boxer using the ropes for balance. Come on, kiddo, let's get the hell out of here. We're heading to hospital. Do we really need to go, Carl? They might start asking awkward questions and... (laughs) Uncontrollably, Lipstick started giggling. What the hell's so funny? Lipstick pointed at Carl's legs. (laughs) You really are wearing (laughs) pyjamas.
0: You've been listening to The Seven Million Dollar Man from the documentary on One. It was narrated by Michael Keeley and produced by Michael Keeley and Tim Desmond. Until next time, thanks for listening.